Well, good morning. morning. I really do appreciate the opportunity uh, to be back with you this morning to share God's Word. I consider this a uh, just a privilege, privilege to speak to my new church family. Terry and I have come to love you dearly, and we're grateful for the interpersonal contact we've had with a good number of you. Look forward to what God has in store for us uh, for many years to come, Lord willing. Uh, wish I was here under different circumstances. Um, Stuart explained a little bit of what was going on in their lives. We know Doug is away. I want to pray for both those families today. And so as you do that, I ask you to silently pray for me as I preach this morning. So we're going to be back in Acts chapter 17. Doug left off at verse 15 last week, and we're going to finish up this chapter this morning, beginning of verse 16 through the end of that chapter. So I ask you to turn there, if you will, with me. Um, I've given a title to this message. It's, um, I've, I've entitled it An Open Door for the Gospel, and I think you'll see why as we work our way through this passage. So if you found it, say amen. 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 God, God bless you. That's good. That's what they used to do in our old church. So we appreciate hearing that this morning. You know, for many, uh, many times when we share the gospel, and this is true of just about every Christian, it can be an intimidating proce- uh, project, uh, process, you know. I mean, we, we, we share the gospel, our best intentions go out there. We want to reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and sometimes we're not met with a positive response. Sometimes people mock us. Uh, sometimes people will uh, just outright reject us. And yet God has given us a great commission. In Matthew chapter 28, um, the Lord's great commission was given to us to go and make disciples of all the nations. He has not rescinded that call. It is still something that is applied to us today. And so we are called to be his witnesses. We're called to be his witnesses from that day until the time of his return, which could be at any time. When you think about the fact that God uses people like you and me, it's really astounding, is it not? I mean, couldn't God have come up with a more foolproof plan for for telling others about him and reaching the world with the gospel than to put it into the hands of people like you and me? But he didn't. He didn't have another plan. He's placed that responsibility squarely upon our shoulders, and he's reminded us that the task of doing that would not always be an easy one. That was certainly true with Paul the Apostle. If you remember when God spoke to him on the Damascus Road, he told him that he was a chosen instrument that would be used of God, and he would preach actually before Gentiles, before kings and children of Israel, but he also gave this caveat. He said, and in doing so, you will suffer for Jesus' sake. Uh, We often think that Paul was some sort of super saint. You know, God gave him this commission, and Paul just had the courage, and, and he had the commitment that set the bar so high that the rest of us could never attain it. And while there's no doubt that God did gift Paul in a very unique way. I'm greatly encouraged when I read how he, Paul, describes how he felt when he preached the gospel to others. And I refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said these words to them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That sounds a lot more like my testimony than Paul's. 
And we would expect Paul would have said, you know, God has empowered me, so I have no fear, I have no weakness, I'm able to carry out this commission. But Paul said, no, I was was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And unless I miss my guess, many of us are in that same boat as well. Whenever we have the opportunity to share the good news of salvation, then we recognize that we can be very timid. We can be very anxious. We can be very fearful. It's not an easy task to tell other people that they're lost. That's a daunting responsibility. Weakness and fear and much trembling. So I want you to keep those words in mind as we work our way through this passage this morning. We're going to begin at verse 16 of chapter 17. And we need to recall that Paul is separated from his missionary companions. He has actually been run out of three towns in Macedonia to the north, the the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. He's been forced to flee southward, and he's by himself at this point. Now, his others, Timothy and Silas, are going to be joining him shortly, but he didn't know when. He prayed that it would be soon, but he wasn't really sure how long he would be in Athens by himself. If you know anything about Athens in the ancient world, then you know that it was an intellectual city. It was also a very influential city in the world at that time. If you've ever been in a large metropolitan city by yourself for the first time, you've never been there before. No one knows you. You know no one else. You don't know where streets are leading. Then you know how intimidating that can be. It can be a very frightening experience. Tim, uh, uh, Paul could have laid low. He could have waited for Timothy, could have waited for Silas. He could have laid low and hidden out, stayed in his room wherever he was staying until they got there because there's strength in numbers when we share the gospel. But Paul chose not to do that. Paul ventured out into the streets of Athens and he was on a mission from God. God had given him this mission. He he wanted Paul to, to preach the gospel wherever he was. And so in spite of his fear, in spite of his weakness, in spite of his much trembling, he was determined to fulfill that purpose that God had called him to. Now in two of the letters that Paul wrote to young churches, to fellow believers, he actually told them that he looked for this kind of opportunity. He looked for opportunities to preach the gospel where Christ had not been preached. In fact, in his letter to to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he said in Ephesus, relating to the time he was in Ephesus, he said, a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So he's got this wide open door to preach the gospel. That's good. But then he was warned, there's going to be people who oppose you. There are going to be adversaries there. Writing to the Colossians uh, sometime later, he told them that they should pray for him, that God would open a door for the word to declare the ministry of Christ. So you see Paul using this expression, this, this term open door. He wanted an open door to be able to preach the gospel. And we find just such an opportunity here in Acts chapter 17. It's being made available to Paul. We look at this passage together and there are at least four practical principles that come out of this passage that I think could help you and me when we are called upon to share the gospel as well. So let me just kind of lay these out. I'll do it one at a time. Verses 16 through 21, the first principle is this. We are to seize every opportunity 
to introduce Christ. Seize every opportunity that is before us to introduce Christ. The text reads this way, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You'll want to remember that. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing Something new. I see what initially strikes us when we look at this passage together is that Paul is now in a pagan culture and he realizes just how deep that paganism goes. It permeated the city. Wherever he went, he saw idols. There were idols everywhere in the marketplace, up on Mars Hill, wherever he happened to be. And the text says that Paul was provoked by it. That word has the idea of being irritated, being greatly disturbed. He was extremely upset over all of this idolatry that he saw in the city of Athens. I don't know how long you've been a believer, but hopefully the longer you are a believer, the more evil will have its um, disturbing effect upon you. You won't want to be around it. You'll recognize it when you see it. You will be disturbed. You will be provoked. And that's what we see happening with Paul here. In the city of Athens, we're told that in ancient times, there were, there were these altars and statues everywhere. In fact, their number was so great that one writer said that it would be easier to find a God in the city of Athens than a man. That's how pervasive idolatry was within that city. Now, Paul was unwilling And he was unable to turn a blind eye to that depravity. And so what he did was instead of staying in his room where he was, where he could have hidden out and waited for help to come, he ventured out into the city. And the first place he went, as was his custom, was to the synagogue where the Jews gathered and where the God-fearing Jews met. And the text tells us that he reasoned with them in the synagogue from the scriptures. That's what they were, would have been familiar with, the Old Testament scriptures. But what did he do on the other days of the week? Well, the text tells us that he could be found in the marketplace, speaking wherever the people were. So you can imagine him on the Sabbath day going into the synagogue and, and reasoning with the Jews and the devout people there. But then the rest of the week, he, he just went out into the city, into the streets, and he rubbed elbows and conversed shared the gospel with whoever was there. Among those who, with whom he conversed on a daily basis were these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. There couldn't have been two groups that differed more in their philosophy of life. But sometimes you have strange bedfellows when they can find a common opponent. And so that's what happens with, with Paul. When they heard Paul preaching, even though they differed significantly 
in their philosophies of life, they came together to oppose Paul, or at least to consider him to be a stranger, a stranger who was preaching strange truth. They called him a babbler. That's what the text says. The word literally means seed picker. It has, it's a derogatory term, and it has the idea of, of referring to someone who made their living by gathering scraps wherever they could be found. But so captured by what this newcomer said, the text tells us that they took him. And the word that is used there for taking him does not mean that they invited him casually to come. It means they, they laid hold of him. They seized him by force. They sort of grabbed him and, and pulled him along to the Areopagus. Now, what's the Areopagus? Well, the Areopagus was actually a group of city officials, leaders, if you will, who would meet on Mars Hill, the Areopagus itself, and they would discuss public policy. They would dispute religious matters. They would uh, determine judicial matters from time to time. And it is there where, as Paul is pro proclaiming the gospel openly to the people, that these religious leaders catch wind of it. And they invite him rather forcefully to come and speak to the larger gathering of leaders within the city. It was not the most friendly invitation, but nevertheless, Paul seized upon the opportunity because here was a chance to preach the gospel where he was. So if you're counting, there, this is actually the third audience that Paul has here in these early verses of uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and following. First of all, he's in the synagogue with the Jews. Secondly, he's in the marketplace with the common people. Now he's going to be before the city officials. Three golden opportunities that are laid before Paul in this strange city to proclaim the gospel. Paul's presence and Paul's preaching was definitely beginning to leave its mark upon that city. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, they ask him. For we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now you talk about an open door. There's one that's being laid right before him. They come to Paul and they say, we want to learn more. How often we wish people would respond to our initial prompting of the gospel in their lives. Tell us more, Dave. We'd love to know more. That doesn't happen very often. But they were eager to at least hear what Paul had to say. And verse 21 tells us why. Verse 21 says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Isn't it ironic that they called Paul a seed picker, gathering data, information, doctrine, wherever he could, but they were the ones who were open to listening to everything. I shared in the, the earlier service, if, I don't know how many of you remember the Andy Griffith show. If you do, praise the Lord. Um, but Andy Griffith, had, there was a barbershop, Floyd's Barbershop on the Andy Griffith show. And this is where all the guys in town would just hang out. And they would talk about everything under the sun. Well, that's what I get you know, in my mind when I read about this. They, they just wanted to hear something new, some new teaching. They were open to just about anything. And they would take that and apply it to their own doctrine. And, and before you know it, they had an amalgamation 
of doctrine. Whenever we seize the opportunity to introduce Christ to others, we should realize God goes before us. God goes before us to prepare the way. Having been brought to a setting where both his and his Lord's credibility lay in the balance, what would Paul now say to these city leaders? What would he say to them? Well, that brings us to the second point, and that is we need to start where people presently are. When Paul shared the gospel, he started where the people were. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That wasn't necessarily a compliment. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. And then in verse 28, he quotes a couple of the, um, the Greek poets. I'll hold that for a moment. What's important for us to realize is that Paul did not launch into a litany of scripture verses. You know how often we are tempted to do that when we're talking with someone who probably has no idea of what the Bible is. Maybe they know it's generally black in color, color and the words of Jesus are in red. <clears throat> But they really don't know much about the Bible at all. And here we are, we start using our Christianese and we start um, you know, using Bible, throwing Bible references at them. I'm not saying we shouldn't use scripture, but that is not always the best place to begin. Paul did not begin there. He could have given a doctrinal treatise at that point. It could have been recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. We would have benefited from that. But he didn't. Instead, he started where his listeners were. He looked for common ground with them. And his reference to the altar bearing the inscription to the unknown God was the place where he began. We are told that the Athenians had gods to, or altars to every conceivable God you could imagine. Every God that was ever known by name, would have an altar there on Mars Hill or within the city. But perhaps they missed a God. Perhaps there was a God out there that they did not recognize or know. Just in case that God existed, they would build an altar to him and just put an inscription on it to the unknown God. That sounds rather foolish to us, doesn't it? But Paul used that as his starting point to present the gospel to them. He tells them what you therefore worship as unknown, this God I proclaim to you. And so he launches into a logical progression, a rational explanation of the one true God, the living God, the creator, the sustainer of heaven and earth. It's not always easy to go from creation to the gospel. It's not easy to go from Psalm 19, 
The heavens are declaring the glory of God and get to the cross very easily. It's not always easy to begin in Romans chapter 1, where we're told we are responsible to this God by virtue of creation and get to the gospel. And yet that's exactly what Paul is going to do here. He began with the, where they were. This, this God, this absolute sovereign and self-sufficient God makes it clear to us that we are accountable to him. And this is emphasized in verses 25 through 27. Notice again where Paul says, this God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. He's the one who gives life and breath to everything. He's the one who, from one man, Adam, made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. We don't appease this God. We don't come to this God and and somehow think that we can do anything that would benefit him. No, we are totally accountable to this God. And so in support of that bold assertion, Paul therefore references two of their poets. And that's that quote that you see in verse 28. There are two quotes there. These are two Greek poets. And Paul's not endorsing what these, everything that these poets had written. It's not like he was saying, now you need to go home and check out their writings. But what he is doing is he's actually lifting phrases from these pagan poets. And he's saying that they had an element of truth in what they said when they said this. It's like the, like the blind squirrel sometimes finds a nut. You know, Truth is truth wherever truth is found. It was Augustine who said all truth is God's truth. But where did Augustine get that? He got it from Paul. Paul recognized that if if it was truth, it had to be from God. Because all truth is God's truth. Truth is God's truth wherever truth is found. I told a story in the first service. I'll try to abbreviate it in this service. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name Don Richardson. Don Richardson was a, was a missionary who, as a college student, was called to New Guinea to um, uh, headhunting tribes in New Guinea. And believe it or not, Don found a wife to go with him. And so they went to New Guinea, and uh, they began interacting with uh, some of the tribes, the headhunting tribes of New Guinea, New Guinea, began interacting with them, and they found out that none of these tribes... Uh, had a written language. Everything was just verbal communication. Now, how are you going to share the Word of God if you don't have some type of written communication? So Don would interact with the people. He actually listened to words. He would try to uh, phonetically come up with words. He put them into some sort of writing, developed a li- a, a, uh, an alphabet, was able to um, actually translate portions of the Bible into their language. Then he had to teach them how to read. And it was a long process. It was a daunting process. They spent many many years doing that. But once he did that, was able to to communicate parts of Scripture and the gospel to these people, he was shocked when he realized that under the Sawi culture, and that was the name of the unreached people group, the Sawi culture always, throughout their lives, understood terms like deceit and treachery to be virtuous. In other words, it was good. That's because they were there with other warring tribes. 
And if they could deceive or um, fool other tribes and get them to suffer defeat at their hands, that was a good thing. So deceit and treachery became very positive things. Don had a hard time trying to convince them that no, when I'm preaching the gospel to you, deceit is not good. Treachery is not good. The problem was so entrenched, so ingrained in their minds were these concepts of these things being good that when Don preached the gospel to them, they saw Judas as the hero and Jesus as the fool. And he tried valiantly, he tried valiantly to get them to understand. And it was like beating his head up against a wall. He could not get them to understand the concept of the goodness of Jesus and the treachery of someone like Judas. Now, he's written a book about that. It's called Peace Child, if you ever want to check it out. But in that book, he refers to something known as redemptive analogies, which basically means we're going to take something that is familiar and we're going to use what the people have a familiarity with to present the gospel. I was going to read you a rather long quote, but let me just tell you what, in essence, happened. The Richardsons had gained respect among the Sowie people. And when the Sowie people heard that they were going to be leaving their area, because Don was at the point where he felt they just needed to pull up stakes and go somewhere else, because they were not proceeding any further with the preaching of the gospel. The tribes got together and said, we're, we're going to hold a peace council. And this was something that they didn't do very often. But in this peace council, they met, they determined that what we will do is we will take one of the children from our tribe and we will exchange our child for one of the children in their tribe. And as long as the child lives, peace will reign. If the child dies, peace terms are over. So mothers were tightly clutching their children, fearfully thinking, I don't want them to take my child and give it to my enemy tribe. But one man wanted peace so badly that he grabbed his young child and he actually ran off to the other village and he gave his son in exchange for another child from that tribe. They realized without knowing it, that they were coming up with a, an illustration of the gospel. Because you see, they came to understand that if a man would actually give up his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. And it was through that redemptive analogy that Don was able to say, don't you understand, that's exactly what God did when he sent his son to die for his enemies. Moral of the story, the end of the story is that within a decade and a half, a church had been established with members from those warring tribes coming together to worship God in a sanctuary. It still meets every Sunday. Sanctuary every, every Sunday. Three to 5,000 people meet in that sanctuary, which they have come to call a house of peace. That's a redemptive analogy. It's taking something that people are familiar with and then introducing the unfamiliar. And if you and I are perceptive enough to our circumstances and the sovereign leading of the Holy Spirit, you and I will be also be finding redemptive analogies that can be adapted into the presentation of the gospel. It means nothing more than beginning where the person is before moving to the unknown. 
And so as you think about family members and, and friends and co-workers, neighbors, throughout this holiday season that is soon to be upon us, I encourage you to consider the common ground that exists between you and them. And then with God's leading and direction, allow him to open those doors of opportunity to present the gospel. So we said two principles so far. First of all, seize every opportunity to introduce Christ. Secondly, start where the people presently are. The third principle that we can glean from this text comes uh, beginning in verses 20, verse 29 down through verse 31. And that is to share what you know to be true. Share what you know to be true. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should know the essence of the gospel. Sometimes we make the gospel so confusing when we talk to people. They're basically, and I'm going to simplify this, they're basically just four things you need to know that the gospel entails. The very first of those is that God is perfectly holy and righteous in all of his ways. God is perfectly holy. There is no taint of sin. There's no taint of evil whatsoever with God. He's perfectly righteous in all his ways. That's the God that we are responsible for. A second thing that we need to know is that God, when he created man, he created man morally upright. And man sinned, Genesis chapter 3, against the holy character of this God, and now stands guilty before him. So in other words, when Adam sinned, Romans makes this clear, we all sinned. We all sinned. He was our federal head. And every human being who was born after Adam inherits the sin nature of Adam. So therefore, we are guilty before this God. God is holy. We're not. There's a problem. And the problem gets even more difficult when we look at the third point. The third point is this. It is that sin that separates us from God. And it incurs His wrath and His judgment. It's not only that God is here and we're here and we'll live separate ways. No, we are responsible to this God. And we are, we are under his condemnation. That's not good news. So therefore, the good news comes in the fourth point. And that is because man could never attain God's righteous standard on his own. We could never make our way to God. God took the initiative, and when he did, he sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die in the place of all who would turn from their sin and entrust themselves to him as Savior and Lord. And to put it succinctly, Christ lived the life that we could never live, but we should have. And he died the death we should have died. That's what, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is about a holy God. It's about a sinful human race. It's about the judgment that we're under. And it's about the redemption that Jesus Christ came and purchased for us. That was the message that gripped the apostle Paul. And it's the message that must grip us as well. So Paul begins there and, and look at verse 29 through 31. Using the poet's quote, if you will. He says, being then God's offspring, that's what your poet said. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of men. 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I want you to just kind of think back to the previous few verses and then this section right here. Paul has basically told these uh, city leaders the Areopagites, three things. First of all, he told them the truth about God. He told them that God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the one who gives life and breath to all. He told them about God. Secondly, he told them the truth about humanity. He told them that men are separated from him, and yet they're subject to his sovereign rule. It's not like you can put God over here and pretend he doesn't exist. No, you're responsible. You're accountable to this God. And now he's upping the ante even more. And he says, he tells them the truth about judgment. We've got holy God, sinful man, judgment. Verse 29 makes it clear that unlike those impotent idols whose altars they kneeled at and worshipped, the one true God cannot be appeased. And worshipped in that way. You don't make an idol of God. The, the Israelites learned that didn't they? When they made the golden calf. We must come God's way. Or we do not come at all. Those times of ignorance that Paul refers to. In verse 30. Doesn't mean that God did not take sin into account. It simply meant that he did not render the punishment upon the people of that day to the extent he could have because his revelation was not yet complete. But now it is with the arrival of Christ. When Christ came, the full revelation of God became evident. And so did man's accountability. We stand accountable to God because the death of Jesus Christ paves the only way to God. And that's what the gospel's about. The key phrase of this entire passage begins midway through verse 30 and goes into verse 31. And it is in reality the open door that we must insist upon. In fact, it is the open door through which we all must enter. He says this, but now, remember times of ignorance, but now, past, but now. Now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. What does repent mean? Repent means a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. He commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by how? Raising him from the dead. If you wonder who this man is, all you have to do is turn to the fifth chapter of John's gospel where Jesus explains to us, it's him. It's, it's Jesus. All judgment has been committed to Jesus. One day Jesus, this Jesus who came and lived sinlessly among us and who gave his life on a cross, poured out his blood, died, was buried, and rose from the grave. One day that same Jesus is going to judge the world. And when Paul tells his audience that such judgment is certain. 
He demonstrates the validity of that assertion by pointing to what? The resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. Just pause and think for just a moment. Apart from the historically verifiable truth that Jesus was bodily raised to life from the dead after shedding his blood on the cross and being buried, there is no hope that any member of Adam's race will ever be saved. That's Paul's point throughout this passage. Apart from the resurrection, there is no gospel. In fact, that's the very hook that Paul used to even gain a conversation with these people. Look at, again at verse 18. It says that what gained him a hearing was because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You cannot divide Jesus and the resurrection. You say, I know that. But how many times do we talk about Jesus and don't really get to the essence of who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Christmas season is typical of that. Sentimental Jesus is flowing all around. Yeah, we, we look at that tiny baby in a manger, and isn't that sweet? Away in a manger. We sing, sing these songs about the baby who can but that baby grew up, and that baby lived a sinless life. That baby gave his life on a cross. That baby died. That baby was buried. That baby rose from the grave. He is king of kings, and he is Lord of lords. And if you try to separate Jesus from the resurrection, what you have is no gospel at all. That door is closed. In fact, it is bolted shut. Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, I declare to you what is of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's Paul's message. And it's got to be our message as well. There is no other message we have to proclaim. Someone texted me this morning knowing I was going to preach today. And they said, give them Jesus. He said, give them Jesus. I said, I have nothing else to give. There's nothing else I can give people but Jesus. Paul availed himself of every opportunity to introduce Christ. He started where people were. He shared what he knew to be true. And he did that while resisting the temptation of watering down the gospel to make it more palpable to those who heard him. He spoke what he knew to be true, and he stayed on point. That's because his interest was not in gaining converts, but in making disciples. That's what Jesus told him to do. So whenever the gospel is shared, you know this to be true. There's a variety of responses. People are going to respond in different ways to the gospel message. Look at verse 32, and this is the last point, submitting the outcome to God's will. We need to you know, not worry about the results per se. I mean, we long for people to be saved, but ultimately it's in God's hands. He's the sovereign God. Our job is to give the gospel. Nobody comes to Christ except the Spirit draws that person to Christ. But they can't be drawn to Christ unless they hear the message. So verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. 
about this. So we see two responses here. One is outright rejection. The, the text says some mocked, and that word means to jeer. It means to scoff at. It means to make fun of. It means to ridicule. And probably you've had that happen to you if you've attempted to tell somebody else about Jesus. If that happens to you, if you, you, you give a, a, a solid presentation of the gospel and somebody mocks you and says, what a fool you are to believe that, take heart because there are countless saints who have gone before you who have had the same response. But there's a second group. Second group of respondents are those who were curious, but they had no commitment. They were, there was curiosity, but there was no commitment on their part. They said, we will hear you again about this. I mean, you've probably had that happen. Yeah, we'll have to talk about this later. Or uh, maybe, maybe we can talk about this next week. Or the next time we see each other, people say. Another day. Another time, perhaps. But nobody knows there's going to be another day. Nobody knows there's going to be another time. Now is the favorable time, Scripture says. Today is the day of salvation. Some people come to church because they like to hear a good sermon. But it, a lot of times it just never moves from the ear to the heart. You think about Herod. Herod the king loved to hear John the Baptist. He would often call for John the Baptist to come in and, and talk about Jesus. But then Herod made an oath one day. A foolish oath. And no matter how much he enjoyed hearing the preaching of John the Baptist, he was willing to cut the preacher's head off. And he did. Be doers of the word, James says. Not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But fortunately, the chapter doesn't end there. Look at verses 33 and 34. So Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed. Believed. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Scripture makes it clear that God's word, when faithfully proclaimed, will never return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sends us. So therefore, we should be encouraged that even though others may mock us, ridicule us, turn away from us, say, I'll hear you later, God is bringing together his remnant of people who believe the message and respond to him in saving faith. What's interesting to me as we think about closing here is that when you go to verse 16 of this chapter, the first impression we get in the chapter is the impression that Athens made on Paul. In other words, Paul finds himself in this strange city and we're told about his impression. He was provoked because there were idols, many idols within the city. So it had a, had a really negative impression upon Paul. But you read the story and you come down near, near the end, you know what you find? You find the impression that Paul made on Athens. Paul left a lasting impression on Athens. And I, I, th I think that's remarkable the way God does that. You know, what looks like a terrible situation, actually God turns to his glory. 
And so by the time we, end, we get to the end of this chapter, we realize that God has actually accomplished something. You say, yeah, but more people turned away from Paul than turned to the gospel. Well, yeah, but nobody would have turned to God, humanly speaking, had Paul not been there to proclaim it and was faithful in doing it. That's the takeaway from this story. Hear me carefully. You and I have an Athens. We may not call it that. We don't call it that. But we have an Athens. We have a place where we live. We have people we interact with. And that could be wherever, whenever, whomever we're with. God leads us to the open doors in our Athens so that we might enter with a message of hope for those who have no hope and are probably unaware of their greatest need. That's what we've been called to do. And the purpose of this message has not been to put a guilt trip on you or make you feel badly because you're not as faithful a witness as you think you should be. But it's to give you hope. It's to give you hope and even joyful anticipation that whenever you open your mouth to speak the gospel, that God is using that in people's lives. So in closing, let me just... Um, Sure, a quote from, from Mark Dever's book. Some of you know Mark. He's pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He wrote a book some time ago called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Let me, just, uh, let me just leave this quote with you and trust that God will use it as a good summary to our message today. Mark writes, The Christian call to evangelism is not simply a call to persuade people to make decisions but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. We do not fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not subsequently converted. We fail only if we do not tell the gospel at all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace that drew us to Christ in the first place. And we thank you for the fact that you have entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. As we interact with this passage this morning and as we consider the times in which we live, we realize that there are many who stand in need of hearing the gospel. And maybe we are the only people in their lives who can give it clearly. As we think of this time of the year and the advent of our Savior coming into this world, perhaps these are days of, of greater opportunity than we typically might experience. And so we ask that you would help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit, to be able to, first of all, understand clearly the gospel, and to be able to share it in a manner that um, can be used of your spirit to draw people to yourself. Lord, it's an awesome responsibility to be ambassadors of Christ. And yet, Lord, it is also a great responsibility. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you, having sins forgiven, and being entrusted with the ministry to give good news.
to those who are without it. May we seize those opportunities. Look for those open doors. Keep us faithful, Lord. Help us overcome our own fears and weaknesses and trembling. But to march with boldness into the fields to which you send us. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. And most of all, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.